right. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Still in greeting mode? Hello? Everybody's doing well? All right. Good stuff. Well, I want to remind you before we go ahead and get started with everything is Jack is getting ready to launch into his uh, Q&A session. So if you want to write down any questions that you may have, you can drop them off out there with an usher or you can actually email them to Ruth Fish, the secretary here, and uh, she can get that question along to Jack. The Q&A session is just a, a time where Jack just takes various questions from the congregation, just those burning questions that you've always been wanting to know about, like superlapsarianism. Harmatology, conspicuousness, asceticism, you know, all of those things that are just at the forefront of your minds. Um, now would be the time to ask them to Jack, and he'll, uh, he'll do his best to, to get those things answered. But, but please take the time to do that. It's a, it's a great time each summer where we get a chance to uh, just have some Bible questions answered, and Jack always does a great job there. Well, with that, let's go ahead and open up in, a, in our time in, in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are a good God and that uh, you love us so much. And Father, I pray right now that you will just allow us all to be able to set aside the, the distractions and the various things that, uh, that may be racing through our minds. And Lord, I pray that you will just help us to really focus in on the message right now. I pray that you will use this message to, to just to help us to examine ourselves, Father, to see how we're living and whether or not we're living in light of who you are and all that you've done for us. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, and we hold our time up to you and just pray that you will be glorified in it. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. All right, this morning I want you to imagine, if you would, yourself going to the doctor's office. Now, for some of you older saints, that won't take a whole lot of imagination. You were just there yesterday, so it's fresh in your mind. For others of you, you don't even have a doctor. You're so young and and fresh that you don't even... Think about going to a doctor. So you might have to use your imaginations a little bit more than uh, than some of us other ones. But but imagine yourself there at your doctor's office talking with your doctor and and you're kind of talking about how you've been feeling and the the various things that are kind of going on, the the aches, the pains. And then all of a sudden your doctor looks at you with a an expression he's never really looked at you before with a, a rather serious look. And he tells you that you have a, a terminal condition. And he sees how this information has affected you. He sees that it's kind of caught you off guard. sees you're stunned by it. So he kind of works his way through the awkwardness of it, apologizes and offers his deepest condolences and then leaves you to ponder the diagnosis. And as you picture yourself sitting in that office, I want you to imagine the thoughts and the feelings that you would be dealing with the thoughts that would be running through your mind I, I want you to think deeply about what would matter most to you as you realize that your life on earth was about to come to an end are any of you thinking out there right now about your high definition plasma tvs and of you contemplating the square footage of your house your your iphone your ipad Or any of you sitting in that doctor's office thinking about how the place that you work at, how are they ever going to be able to get along without you? Any of you thinking about who's going to take out the trash? You find yourself wishing you had more time left so that you can get through all of those movies that you've placed in your queue at Netflix. Is that where your mind's going? Do you find your mind pondering whether or not this is the year that your team is finally going to win it all? If you're a UCLA fan, the answer is no. Okay. (laughs) 
So let me be the one to share that with you. It's, it's no, all right? I'm sorry, that's too easy to let pass up. But as you sit there, and as you ponder yourself sitting there in that doctor's office, what fills your mind? Better yet, as you sit there in that doctor's office considering the brevity of life, what should be filling your mind? If you're someone that has placed your faith and trust in the perfect work and person of Jesus Christ, then the reality of being ushered into the presence of your Lord will undoubtedly come to your mind. Because the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, 8, that to be absent from the body is to be at home, at home with the Lord. Does this thought frighten any of you? Do you find yourself sitting in that doctor's office afraid and anxious? Or rather, is there a peace that comes over you that passes all understanding? That brings to mind that you have nothing whatsoever to fear. That God has taken care of everything for you. He has paid the price. All you need to do is come and enter into the joy of your master. Well, consider this sanctuary, your doctor's office. Consider this pastor, your doctor. And consider this this message, your doctor's news. Because each and every one of us that is sitting in this sanctuary right now has been infected by a deadly disease, a disease that will someday in the not-too-distant future take our lives. And the Bible tells us that that disease is, is sin. And the Bible also helps us to understand that this disease is, in fact, terminal. Now, does hearing that your terminal disease is only sin relieve you? Does it put you at ease and cause you to think that you still have, you know, lots of plenty of time to still live your life? I mean, with modern technology, you'll live well into your 70s, 80s, maybe even your 90s. Well, if it does, then you neither understand your sin nor what the Bible says about the times we are living in. And I am certain that the people of Noah's time felt as if they had plenty of time to live. And I'm sure that they were confident that they thought nothing of what Noah was saying was going to be happening. I thought, I bet you they, they would laugh day after day at Noah and his boys as they worked on that ark and they built it year after year after year. I'm sure people had a lot of funny Noah jokes back then. But a day did come whereby the sky and the land opened up and water came forth to such a degree that the, the entire world was flooded. And only those who were on the ark were preserved. I'm sure that many people have felt as if they had plenty of time to live, plenty of time to play, plenty of time to repent, only to find themselves in an unexpected tragedy. I mean, people wake up every day thinking that they'll, they'll simply just go to work, then they'll, they'll come home and watch a little TV, and then they'll just do the same thing the next day, only to never make it home or to never wake up the next day. There is a certain degree of uncertainty that comes with life, and, and yet many of us don't like to acknowledge this. This has kind of become the new social taboo we don't like to talk about death we don't like to bring that up because for many it it it, it causes anxiety it causes uncertainty they don't really have any hope or any faith but you and i too we can like to think that we're in control of things and 
and that nothing can alter our plans or our dreams. We've got too many things still to do, too many things that we've got to accomplish, too many things that we still want to get to. And yet each of us knows people that have died unexpectedly. Each of us have been hit in some way by an unexpected death. And yet we still like to think we're in control. But you know, the uncertainty of life and death is not the only reality that we must contend with, for there is also the impending return of the Lord. The New Testament gives us the promise that Jesus Christ will return again, and yet, and yet, many of us live as if this were not true. Many of you this morning aren't even, haven't even thought twice about the fact that Jesus Christ could come back at this moment. But I assure you, brothers and sisters, it is true. It is a reality. It is something that is ever before us. Jesus speaks of his eminent return in John 14, 2 through 3. He says this, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. The angels also speak of his imminent return as he ascended into heaven in Acts 10 through 11. It says, and as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. James speaks of his imminent return in James 5, 8. It says, you too be patient, strengthen your heart for the coming of the Lord is near. And John speaks of his imminent return in Revelation 22, 18 through 20. I, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The discussion surrounding Jesus's return has been the topic of of many sermons. I mean, without question, many of Jesus's early disciples had this expectation. They believed that he would return during their lifetime, I'm convinced that they, they thought for sure they would not die, that they would see Jesus return in their lifetime. And yet here we are some 2,000 years later, and he still hasn't come. So what does this mean? Does this mean that he, he's not coming? Does this mean that, that something has gotten in the way of his return? Does this mean that, you know what, he had intentions to be here by now, but, but you know, there were some unexpected things. The house, you know, how house repairs go. I didn't quite get everything ready in time, and so I needed to take a little bit more time to get that ready. Is that what's going on? Is Jesus hindered by some circumstance beyond his control that has hindered him getting here and coming here and returning like he said he would? Hardly. In fact, an argument could be made that God is not hindered by time in the same ways that we are. In fact, the psalmist in Psalm 90, 90 verse 4 says this, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. So really, it's only been like two days. 
according to this, right? That Jesus has not returned. So it's still, it's still a short period of time. You know, and God doesn't view time like you and I do. He's not confined to time in the same way that you and I are. I mean, think about it. If you've always existed, if there's never been a time when you have not existed, is time that big of a deal to you? I mean, whether it be a, a minute, a thousand years, 10,000 years, if you've always been, is, is time, is time important? Is time relevant? And yet God speaking through the various New Testament writers has told every generation leading up to and including ours that Christ's return is imminent and that the end is near. So why, why has he done this? Why has he told us this? The answer to this question is critical. And I think... Uh, William Barclay offers a pretty good answer to it when he writes this. He says, The simple fact is that behind this there is one inescapable and most personal truth. For every one of us the time is near. The one thing which can be said of every man is that he will die. For every one of us the Lord is at hand. We cannot tell that day and the hour when we shall go to meet him. And therefore all life is lived in the shadow of eternity. This morning, we're going to look at a text that was written to a group of Christians that were, were suffering persecution. They were going through some, some pretty tough times, hardships, difficulties. For them, living in light of Christ's return was essential to their, their persevering. To them, it was absolutely critical that they have some glimmer of hope to be able to hold on to. Because you know what? People around them were dying. They were being beaten. They were being stricken down. And they needed some kind of a hope to be able to hold on to. And so when we're talking about the end being near, that was undoubtedly a a great source of encouragement to them. I mean, being reminded of the fact that the day was coming whereby everything would be made right. Everything would be put as it should be put. Everything should function as it was designed to function. That is a great motivation to press on. I mean, it's kind of like vacation, right? I mean, you, you know, you're working really hard and you're kind of laboring really hard and you're putting in a lot of work and you're, you're just, but you know, you know, in a couple weeks, vacation's there and I finally get to get away and I don't have to bring my phone with me. I don't have to have my email. I don't have to have anything. I can just get away and relax and, and, and that'll be a good day. It's kind of that kind of a motivation where, you know, it's, it's out there. It's close and it motivates you to be able to to keep pressing on. That's kind of the situation here. In fact, we're going to look at the text that was written to these believers. So go ahead and turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Because you and I are still in need of being reminded of the fact that a day is coming whereby everything will be made right. You and I still need to be reminded just like those believers need to be reminded that Jesus Christ is coming back and everything will be right as a result of that. But that should motivate us to live rightly now. So let's go ahead and look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. This is what the Word of God says. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. 
As each one has received a special gift, employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength with which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This morning, I want to challenge each of us to examine how we are living in light of the fact that the end of all things is near. In our text, we're going to find five ways that God calls the Christian to live, five ways that demonstrate that that we are living with the end in view. So whether you find yourself in in the midst of suffering for your faith, or rather, more than likely, you find yourself drowning in a sea of postmodernism thought. God is calling you to examine yourself to see how you living. Our text this morning starts out with these words. The end of all things is near. And really, it's this statement that kind of sets in motion all of the things that are going to follow. It's going to be what everything else that we're going to talk about. So I want to make sure that we don't just kind of breeze right by it and thereby miss what is to act as a means of motivation, a means of encouragement for how you and I are to live as Christians. The end of all things is near. Do you believe that, brothers and sisters? Do you really truly believe that does your current way of living does the way that you're living your life right now does it really reflect that you believe that the end is near do the things you're pursuing the things that you're really going hard after show that you know what you are expecting jesus christ to come back at any moment does your life show that Because my fear is that far too many of us have forgotten how we are to live. I think we've become a little too comfortable here in this world and we've forgotten that this world is not our home. This is not the Christian's home. And yet my fear is far too many of you are getting way too comfortable here in this world pursuing things that in the end are going to totally burn and and be for naught. We've forgotten the words of our Lord that he spoke in Matthew chapter 6 verses 19 through 20 where he, he says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. I think some of you out there have been lulled to sleep i think some of you out there have become apathetic in your pursuit of god i think some of you out there have become more concerned about the next movie that you're going to watch than you are about the next truth that you're going to get as you open up the word of god assuming you open up or the next time you pray assuming that you're going to pray the end is near so, so stop pursuing those things that are only going to burn when all is said and done. The end is near. So stop indulging in those lusts that are conforming you more and more into the image of this world. The end is near. So stop trying to straddle the line between being godly and being accepted 
by the world and the world standards. Oh, how I wish some of you would wake up and understand that at any moment you could find yourself standing in the presence of the Lord. How I wish I could, I could awaken each of you to the nearness of the Lord and make you understand that the end is near. It is right there. And when we understand that, when we grasp that, I'm convinced and scripture helps us to see that when, that when we realize this, the nearness of Christ, it changes how we live. Some of you are living ungodly, undisciplined lives because you are failing to live as if the end is near. You're counting on the fact that you're going to have plenty of time to repent and to make things right later. You cannot and will not walk in obedience to Jesus Christ unless you are thoroughly convinced that he is real and that he is coming back very soon and you may find yourself standing before him having to give an account of how you lived. If Jesus Christ is nothing more than some kind of a safety net or or fire insurance for you, just in case, you know, just in case this Christian thing is, is, is real, then your life will reflect that you and that you will fail to live as you ought to live, that you will live like the unbeliever that you are, giving little to no thought to the day that you will stand in his presence because it's not even registering with you. But if you are convinced that Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life, And that nobody gets to the Father except through Him. If that truth has pierced your heart so that you want to live for Him and you want to make much of Him in all that you say and in all that you do, then you will live with a certain anticipation, a certain anxiousness of of seeing that glorious day whereby you'll be ushered into the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter knew that the believers he was writing to were being persecuted and and that they were suffering greatly for their faith. He knew that they would be tempted because of all that was going on around them, that they would be tempted to forget God's promises, that they might be be, be uh, tempted to, to turn away from the faith because things were hard. Life was not good in the sense of the difficulties they were having to endure. Therefore, he wrote so as to encourage them to persevere. He wrote to them so that they would remember and not give in, that they would remember how it is they are to live in light of the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back. But what about you? Are you in danger of growing weary because of persecution? Or are you more in danger of letting this world appeal to you a little more than it should? Are you a little more in danger of of being lulled to sleep into thinking that this life is all that there is and therefore it will benefit you to get as much as you can here? But let me tell you this, God is not mocked. If you are living for this life, And this life alone, if you have no care whatsoever, whether Jesus comes back or not, God will not be mocked by that. And even if you fool everyone around you into thinking that you're a Christian, that you love the Lord, 
you speak the right things, you say the right things, you give an amen to the fact that, yes, I believe the Lord's coming back, but in your heart you don't live that way. Just understand that God will never be fooled by any show or display that we put on. He knows your every thought. He knows your every action. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things, all things are open to be laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The best way to determine if we really believe that the end is near is to, is to examine how we are living. How we are living. Just as if you learned that only a, a short time to live would radically change your pursuits, what's important to you, so too will knowing that the end is near. And the first thing, according to our text, that we must do to demonstrate that we are living with the end in view is to live soberly. God calls us to live soberly. Picking it up in verse 7. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Now, the two verbs that are used here are almost synonymous, and they, and they help us to see the importance of thinking soundly and, and rationally. And if you and I are not careful to take our thoughts captive, as we're told to in, in 2 Corinthians 10.5, as it tells us to do, then we can easily be led astray by our feelings or the common thoughts of our day as to what is or isn't acceptable. If we're not careful, if we don't fill our minds with the things of God's Word and Scripture, you and I can be easily duped and tricked into trusting in our emotions and our feelings and the general thoughts and consensus of this world that we live in. And if you and I are not able to come to a situation and think about it rightly, to think about it biblically, then we will be prone to respond in an irrational manner. If we don't have our eyes wide open to the fact that we are to be living with what John Piper terms a wartime mindset, then we will continually fall prey to Satan's snares and his various traps. Listen to how Piper explains this wartime mindset in his book entitled Don't Waste Your Life. He writes, quote, It tells me that there is a war going on in the world between Christ and Satan, truth and falsehood, belief and unbelief. It tells me that there are weapons to be funded and used, but that these weapons are not swords or guns or bombs, but the gospel and prayer and self-sacrificing love. And it tells me that the stakes of this conflict are higher than any other war in history. They are eternal and infinite. Heaven or hell, eternal joy or eternal torment, end quote. Having this sober and rational view of life helps us to make sure that we invest our time and resources into things that really matter. You see, if we, if we think that it's, it's peace, peace, and there's peace all around us and everything's all good, we can kind of let our guard down, right? We can kind of fall into the trappings that, well, yeah, we're, it's all good. It's peaceful. I can go after this. This is all right. But you know what? When you're in a wartime mentality, it changes everything that you think about. You live a little more soberly. You're not as, you're not as prone to just waste and, and, and let things go because you realize there's a war going on. Lives are, are, are depending on, on your ability to use the resources that have been entrusted to you. And so you, you live completely differently when you're in a war than when you do during peace times. But my concern is that too many people within the church have become intoxicated with the things of this world such that they are not able to properly discern God's will, let alone do it. Their minds have become so corrupted by the, 
this idea that things are all good and, and we're at peace, that we lose sight of the fact that there is a war going on. And we need to think soberly. We need to think rightly. We need to make sure that we're living our lives in such a way that God is honored and glorified. But you and I have this propensity to, to wander and to, and to miss out on all that God promises. Listen to what C.S. Lewis, he puts it well when he writes this. He says, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. You know, all sin is an irrational act when you, when you view it in contrast to the glory of Christ, isn't it? I mean, only a fool would exchange the, the truth of God for the lie or, or worship the creature rather than the creator. And yet, how many times have we done this? If the truth be told, this is what our sin causes us to do, right? It causes us to pretend like God doesn't really exist. We're going to kind of remove him off of his throne for a little bit. And now we're going to pursue this desire of ours, this created thing, this creature. And we're going to kind of push off the creator. But this is what happens with sin. It is irrational when you compare it to the glory that is found in Jesus Christ. You and I act like ignorant children who are content with our mud pies rather than basking in the glory of our risen Lord. And, and not only does this affect our physical lives, but it also carries over and contaminates our prayer lives so that you and I don't pray as we ought to. Instead of turning to God and asking Him to do great and wonderful things through us, to use us within His kingdom, to reach the lost and, and to see people converted and saved, we go to Him and we start asking Him for all of our latest desires. We, we ask Him for new cars, new houses, new jobs, new neighbors, new cell phones, new this, new that. By failing to think soberly and rationally, we have allowed our prayer lives to be reduced to times whereby God is, is just asked for the latest and greatest desire. That's all we're there for. We're not there to worship Him. We're not there to praise Him. We're not there to tell Him how wonderful He is. We're just there to get what we want. And what we want is probably more worldly than any of us would care to admit. Prayer for many of us is a far cry from what it should be. And again, that's assuming that it's happening at all. If you and I are to think soberly about life, then we should understand just how much we need the Lord in order to live as we should. The only rational approach to life is, is to pray often. Right? Isn't that the only rational thing to do? Because you and I are, are, aren't able to control the circumstances and the situations around us. We'd like to kid ourselves into thinking that we could. But you know what? Bottom line... Are you in control of this life? Can you control what everybody else does around you? Can you control what the other driver who's driving another car is going to do? Can you control the actions of another individual who may want to hurt you or even kill you? We are all a little bit out of control. And when we pray, it acknowledges that. 
And it shows that we are dependent on God. We're dependent on God to help us to live as we ought to live because left to our own devices, you and I would never live the way that we should. You know, like kids, we would, we would indulge ourselves with junk food and, and things that are bad for us and thinking that we can handle it when in actuality it would take its toll and it would destroy us. You and I need a heavenly father to watch over us, to guide us. We need to be dependent on him if we're going to do anything that's going to matter. He was the famous missionary to China, J. Hudson Taylor, that once said this, I used to ask God to help me. Then I asked if I might help him. I ended up asking him to do his work through me. You know, the sober, right-thinking person is the one that understands that apart from God, he can do nothing. I mean, it's really only as we learn to rely on the power and strength of God that we can hope to accomplish anything of eternal significance. And get this, this is of eternal significance. Some of you may be great and wonderful minds and you may be able to make lots of money and you may be able to be in a certain power or position of power and and control things. But you know what? In the end of it all, is God going to be wowed by by your portfolio or by your position or any of those types of things? Is God going to be impressed with what you were able to accomplish at your work? If it didn't do anything to bring him glory, if it was done strictly for your own ease, your own enjoyment, your own, your own desires. A lot of us are going to stand before the Lord and we're going to see just how much of our works were nothing but more than a bunch of wood, hay and stubble because we failed to include God in it. We sought to do it in our own strength and our own power. And as a result, it will suffer the the consequences of being tested by fire. Prayer is the means by which the Christian shows his understanding of being a dependent creature. But this doesn't sit well with our self-made, self-reliant American culture. We don't like that word dependency. But prayer breaks down the facade of our being in control of every situation and circumstance. It causes us to think rightly think soberly about ourselves and our condition as we enter into the presence of a perfectly holy God so that we can make our requests made known to him. It helps us to remember that the end is near and therefore we need to be busy about our master's business. And the more you and I pray, the more we will desire to, to, to do great things for him and to have him do great things in and through us to be used by him so that others might be able to experience what an awesome God he is. Now, having established our need to live soberly, we're now ready to look at the second way that we must conduct ourselves if we are to show that we are living with the end in view, and that being our need to live lovingly. God calls us to live lovingly. Looking at verse 8, we're told this, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, in an effort to show the superiority of of love in all things, Peter puts a, a, a great emphasis on the necessity of showing mutual love. This is a common thread that we see all throughout the Bible. We see it, you know, throughout throughout the pages of Scripture. God has always called His people to demonstrate a deep love for one another. In the Shaw Pocket Bible Handbook, the importance of love is made perfectly clear when it says this: All religions have some idea of the importance of love. Christian theology stresses the importance of love because God has revealed that He is love, 1 John 4, 8. Love is both what God is and what He has done. God always acts in love. 
In the Bible, love is described as personal between persons and selfless, desiring the best for others. Christians are to be known by the fact that they love God and others. John 13, 34 through 35. Their love is not to be like the world, like the love of the world has. Love is best seen in actions and in most cases is to be identified with what we do in our compassion and commitment to those around us, regardless of the object's virtue. Our loving attitudes and behavior are to reflect God's love. End quote. Jesus taught that it was both a love for God and a love for man that fulfilled all of the law. Without love, the Christian life is is rendered as useless and one should seriously question whether his love for God is really there if he finds himself unable to love those who are made in God's image. Though one may speak with the tongues of men, of angels, he's reduced to nothing more than a noisy gong if he is without love. If one knows great and mysterious things and has the faith to move mountains and yet is without love, he is considered as nothing. If one sells all he has to feed the poor and suffers even unto death but does so without love, he is benefited in no way whatsoever. It is one's love for Jesus Christ that drives his love for his brother. And Peter insists that this love is to be a a fervent love. The term that he uses here was often used to describe a horse that was at full gallop or to bring to mind the the taut muscle of strenuous and sustained effort, that of an athlete. So so picture a horse running or an athlete stressing himself to the point of of exerting all that he has for the sake of, of competing. That is how our love is to be. It is to be fervent. It is to take all of us. It is to consume our whole being so that all of us is put into it. Christian love, though, is not always easy, is it? And yet it is always required. The Bible knows nothing of the so-called Christian that loves his theology and yet has little to no regard for his brothers. I mean, that guy that says, you know what? If I could just read my Bible, just me and God, and not have to deal with all the people... That'd be good. That'd be living. I'd be in heaven then. But you know what? That's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is is about people. It's about loving God, yes, but it's also about loving God's people. Those that think that Christianity would be great if it weren't for the people have no understanding of what true biblical Christianity is all about. They might have a head knowledge about God, but they have no understanding of biblical Christianity. You know, there are some people within the Christian community that are difficult to love. I mean, they may be, they're they're, they're draining. They're insulting at times. They're demanding often. Rough around the edges. They may even seem incapable of, of loving or being loved. There are some difficult people right here, right here. And yet it is our love for one another that demonstrates to the world that we are followers of Jesus Christ, right? Loving each other can expose us to all kinds of grief and and sorrow, and yet it is vital to our growth as believers. If we don't have love for one another, if we don't get ourselves out there and, and challenge ourselves to love other people, we are missing the life that God is calling us to. Listen to what Thomas Akempis had to say about love. He says this, To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. 
If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not, it, it will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. Whereas we put ourselves at risk by loving, we put ourselves in danger of hell by not loving. As we love people, they will undoubtedly sin against us as we will sin against them. And yet it is our love for one another that will enable us to forgive each other as this happens. Because as we're told in our text, love covers a multitude of sins. When you truly love somebody, you are willing to not hold their sin against them. In a sense, you are willing to cover their sins. This does not mean that we do not confront a person with their sin or that we are blind to their sin. It simply means that when we love somebody, we will be quick to deal graciously with them in an effort to restore peace to our relationship. There is no delight in exposing a person's sin or parading it before others. It is not love to hold an individual's sin against them or to allow their sin to, to hinder your relationship with them. Sin must be dealt with, and when it is, our love must move us to cover up the offense. This is what takes place when we sin against God. He does not hold our sin against us. As 1 John 1, 9 so beautifully states, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a glorious, wonderful promise this is. And God tells us each that are Christians, that are followers of him, that we are to do the very same thing in our dealings with one another. We are to be a people that forgive. As those that have been forgiven of much, we need to be a people who forgive much as well. Now, having covered our need to live soberly and lovingly, we're now ready to look at the third way that we must conduct ourselves if we are to show that we are living with the end in view, that being our need to live hospitably. God calls each of us to live hospitably. We see this as we continue reading in verse 9. It says, Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Now, hospitality is, is, and one commentator puts it, an affectionate concern for strangers that expresses itself in offering them food and shelter. I think this must be the reason why so many Christian functions resolve around food. It's just kind of that hospitality idea with food. It just kind of kicks right in there. I mean, have you ever stopped, though, and, and, and think about how much the early church depended on hospitality? I mean, without it, missionaries, many missionaries would have found themselves thrust into a public inn whereby they would have been exposed to acts of drunkenness and immorality and violence. Many of them would have uh, been beaten, I'm sure, as they confronted people with their sins and tried to expose them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. These public inns weren't anything like what you and I have to deal with, with hotels and even motels. Um, They were a tough place to go. And as a result, uh, there would have been very little encouragement or or strengthening for the service if these missionaries would have had to rely on on that type of care. 
Also, the early church would have been greatly impacted were not for the common practicing of hospitality. I mean, many homes were, were opened up for the sake of gathering to, to worship. I mean, we didn't have the, the, they didn't have the nice fancy buildings like this to be able to meet in. So they had to meet in homes. And they had to open up homes, oftentimes to complete strangers, so that they could be encouraged and edified. Peter understood the importance of hospitality, and so he encouraged everyone, everyone, not just the elders or those who possess the gift to show hospitality to one another. He challenges everyone to do it. Hospitality is an expression of Christian love whereby we show concern and regard for individuals that we might not know or might not otherwise have dealings with. The showing of hospitality is not something that is reserved only for those who possess 2,000 square foot houses or above. You don't even have to own a house to be hospitable. All you have to do is love people especially people you don't even know in a very tangible way by sharing what God has so graciously given to you. This is something that every believer is capable of and every believer is called to do. The New Testament, I think, is full of instances whereby various people are called to live hospitably. Romans twelve thirteen tells us all to practice hospitality. 1 Timothy 3, 2 instructs us that an overseer is to be hospitable. 1 Timothy 5.10 makes having shown hospitality to strangers a necessary quality in order for a widow to be put on the church's care list. Hebrews 13.2 reminds us all that we are to not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. And Jesus, when speaking with those blessed saints on his right hand, brings to mind that he was a stranger and they invited him in. But to the accursed that were standing on his left, he recalls that he was a stranger and they did not invite him in. Hospitality is an essential Christian trait that we must all practice and yet there is something that we must never do or allow ourselves to do as we live hospitably. We are never to complain. And yet it's very easy to go there, isn't it? It's very easy to grumble and complain when we're trying to be hospitable because after all, there's a house to clean, there's things to put away, there's things to do, there's food to buy, there's, there's preparations to make. You don't just kind of let somebody in without preparing your place. Hospitality can be a challenge and it could move us to grumble and complain when nobody's around. And if we're not careful, we can fall into the trap of acting like the Pharisees, right? A group that Jesus described as being like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. To the guest who enters into your home, you're all smiles and you're all giggles and you just got all the social charms going with them. But prior to that, as you were getting your house ready, where was your heart? Grumbling, complaining has no place in in regards to hospitality. And if our attitudes are not right, then our hospitality really isn't hospitable. Yes, practicing hospitality can become costly. It can become inconvenient. Some people may even take advantage of your hospitality. But if we remember that the end is near, If we remember that the day is coming whereby Jesus Christ, who sees everything, will make everything right, we will be able to bear any discomfort with cheerfulness as we walk in obedience to our glorious Lord. 
Now, thus far, we've seen the importance of living soberly, living lovingly, and living hospitably, which means we are now ready to look at a fourth way that we must conduct ourselves if we are to show that we are living with the end in view, that being our need to live faithfully. God calls us to live faithfully. We find this call to faithfulness in verses 10 through 11a. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. Here lies a great and glorious truth. And Jim Barnfather touched on it earlier this morning. And we didn't even coordinate anything. So it's, it's wonderful how God does that. If you're a Christian, God has entrusted you with a spiritual gift that you are to use for the building up of his body. And while you've done nothing to deserve or earn this gift, God being the benevolent father that he is, he has given it to you. He's entrusted it to you. At the time of your salvation, he's given it to you so that you would use it, not for yourself, but for the benefit of others, for the benefit of the body of Christ. Now, don't miss this. If you are a Christian, you have been entrusted with a gift. And even if that gift is a natural talent like teaching or singing or drawing, it can become supernaturally energized to such a degree that it can be a great blessing to others within the body. In fact, this is the very reason that it has been given to you. The difficulty for many people, though, is trying to discern, trying to figure out what their spiritual gift really is. And you know, there's been all kinds of tests, all kinds of surveys that you can kind of take to figure it out. Some of these may or may not be helpful. But really, the most profitable way that I've seen people to attempt to properly discern their spiritual gift is by trying various things out. I mean, do you love to sing? Try, try serving in the choir. Do you enjoy working with middle school or high school students? Check out youth ministry. Go up there and see what they do up there. Do you like holding babies or getting spit up on? (laughs) We got a nursery right over there with plenty of infants that would be more than happy to spit up on you at any moment. There are ample opportunities for each and every person in this church to exercise their spiritual gift. In fact, if everyone in this church made it a point to use their spiritual gift, we would be in awe at the multifaceted ministries that God would raise up in our midst. Every believer is critical to the proper functioning of the local church. There is no gift. There is no gift that is not needed or that cannot be used for the service of Christ's body. I mean, listen to what Paul has to say about the body in 1 Corinthians 12, 27. He writes this, But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. 
As these verses help us to clearly see, we are all members of the same body. And as such, we are all in need of each other. If you are a part of Christ's body and you're not being faithful to function in the capacity that he's called you to function in, then you are not only hurting yourself, you are also hurting the entire body. Each and every one of you has a God-given responsibility to make an honest appraisal of your giftedness. And once you discern what that is, you are to use that giftedness for the benefit of these brothers and sisters that are right here at Calvary Bible Church. But you know what the problem is? The problem is that some of you think that showing up is a spiritual gift. I mean, really, some of you think that you're You're doing your part simply by being here. Thank you. I mean, some of you think that God is impressed by by how well you sit and learn because that's all you ever do. Some of you have been coming to Calvary for years and all you've ever done is show up. I ask you, how, how are you benefiting others merely by your attendance? How is the body being blessed How are you being faithful to use that spiritual gift that God has given to you? Listen to the words that are spoken to the unfaithful servant who simply buried the talent that was entrusted to his care. In Matthew 25, 26 through 27, you wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank and on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. You and I need to be under the conviction that nothing we have, not our material goods, not our physical or mental talents, nothing, nothing belongs to us. We are all stewards, stewards that have been entrusted by God to manage that which he has given to us. And if you're simply using that that gift for your own personal benefit or convenience, you will answer to God. You will answer to God. And remember this, the end is near. Our master is not far off. We will need to reckon with him very soon. So as such, I I plead with you to examine how you're living. I beg of you to be busy about his work so that you may, may hear these wonderful words. Well done. Well done. Good and faithful servant. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. As those that have been endowed with gifts from God, we are to speak and serve in and through his power. But get this, we are never, never to do either in a spirit of arrogance. It is with gentleness and humility that we are to use the gifts that he has given to us, never forgetting from where they have come or for whom they are for. Thus far, we've seen the importance of living soberly, lovingly, hospitably, and faithfully, which means that we are now ready to look at the fifth and final way that we must conduct ourselves if we are to show that we are living with the end in view, that being our need to live reverently. God calls us to live reverently. Look at the final portion of verse 11. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever Amen. 
You and I have been created for one specific purpose, and that purpose, according to the Westminster Catechism, Shorter Catechism, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now, the guys over at Westminster didn't just come up with that on their own. Okay? They actually went to the Bible and, and they, they found verse after verse just helping us to understand that this idea of glorifying God is what we are to do. Psalm 86, 8 through 10 says this, There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord. They shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him... Be glory forever. Amen. First Corinthians 620. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. First Corinthians 1031. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This is why we were made. To bring glory to God. So what is it about God that makes him worthy of glory? What is it about him that sets him apart? What puts him above anyone and anything else? Well, I like what D. Martin Lloyd-Jones had to say about that. He said, God is the eternal, the creator, the artificer, and sustainer of everything that is glorious in holiness and power. He is the one to whom the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. He is a person and he has not only created everything and sustains everything, but everything is subject to his dominion and reign. Brothers and sisters, this is the God that we are to live for. This is the God that we are to worship and praise. This is the God to whom belongs all glory and dominion forever and ever. This is the God who through his son made a way for sinners like us to be brought back into a right relationship with him. He is the God that has forgiven us of our sins. And because of who God is and for all that he has so graciously done, you and I are to exalt his great name. And yet even even in light of all that he has done, we still have to guard against our all-too-natural propensity to exalt our wills, to exalt our desires over and above his. We still have to seek to die to ourselves daily so that we can live for him and reverence him in the manner that he is deserving of. Even in our service to him, if we're not careful, we can begin to forget the only reason we are able to do anything that is pleasing to him is because of what he has done for us through his son. And the more we come to grips with who God is and with all that he has done to restore our relationship with him, the more awestruck we should become. The more clearly we see our sin and understand the offensiveness of it, the more committed we should be to reverence God and thus break out like Peter into a doxology of praise where we just worship him. The gospel is a glorious truth and the more clearly we understand it, the more apt we will be to live our lives with hearts that are overflowing with gratitude. I don't know about you, but the longer I'm a Christian, the more painfully I wear I am of my depravity. Like Paul, I can find myself at times crying out to God, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But then I'm reminded of the answer that quickly follows Paul's plea. It says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through Christ, our heavenly father has dealt the death, has dealt death its final blow. Through Christ, the father's wrath has been satisfied and that he was pleased to crush his son on our behalf. Through Christ, we are adopted into God's family and blessed with every spiritual blessing from above. 
Through Christ, we are credited with a righteousness that is not our own, such that we stand before the Father completely and totally justified. How amazing is that? How marvelous is that? If these truths do not stir within you a desire to live reverently, then I I don't know what will. The end of all things is near. Each of us, each of us are moving at neck-breaking speed towards this end. Jesus Christ is coming soon. And in light of this, I ask you, brothers and sisters, how are you living? Are you ready for the Lord of glory to come back? Not as a suffering servant this time, but now as a reigning king? I hope so. This morning we've looked at five ways that you and I should be living in light of the end being near. Five ways that God calls every follower of Christ to live. And they were the fact that you are to live soberly. You are to live lovingly. You are to live hospitably. You are to live faithfully. And you are to live reverently. I want to challenge each and every one of you that is here this morning to examine whether or not you are living in this way. And I pray for your sakes that you are, but if for any reason you are not, please know that if you are a Christian, God has given you all of the resources that you need to start living like this now. By the power of His Holy Spirit, you can and must start living in light of the end being near now. Through your faith in Christ, God made you a new creature and He has transferred you into the kingdom of His marvelous Son. He has removed you from the domain of darkness and He's brought you into the light. Live like that now. Live as a resident of that kingdom now. If you are not a Christian, then please understand that it is not too late for you. The end is near, but it has not come yet. But do not test God. Do not suppose that you can continue in your current state and thus come to God on your own terms and your own time. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you need to turn from your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only means to the Father. The Bible tells us that the end of all things is near. So again, I ask you, how are you living? Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you. We thank you for the grace and the mercy that you have shown us through your Son. We thank you for the new life you have given us in him. And we pray, Father, that you will help us to live in light of the fact that his return is coming. It is near. So, Father, help us all to be ready. May you just continue to stir these hearts of ours and continue to help us to see how much we need you. And Lord, help us to live these lives. Help us to live as those who are eagerly awaiting your son's glorious return. We ask this in his precious name. Amen.